Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Emerging from the New York punk scene, Chris Stein and Deborah Harry took the world by storm with their innovative production, Sharp Image, and Tales of Urban Heartbreak. As the songwriting partnership at the heart of Blondie, they penned some of the most definitive songs at the turn of the 80s, mixing spiky guitars, raw synths, and driving drums that enraptured and inspired kids and rebels around the world. With classic songs like Heart of Glass, Rapture, and The Tide is High, they created their own sound from New York's melting pot of punk, new wave, reggae, and hip-hop, all shot through with Deborah Harry's cool vocals. In a conversation at the 2013 Red Bull Music Academy hosted by Benji B, the duo recalled New York in the 70s and 80s. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please join me in welcoming the amazing Chris Stein and Debbie Harry. What was um? What did West 18th Street look, used to look like? Uh, Before this 18th Street. It means here. Oh. Physically, it wasn't that different. It was pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. but mm. it's just the interiors have changed. Yeah. And the quality of the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Chris is very impressed with the. So you have red cameras. I cameras. see. Cameras. So yeah, those are not cheap. Well, you were sort of a pioneer of early early New York camera stuff, weren't you? I mean, you did, you did one of the first almost like pirate TV. We did this thing called TV Party, which was on cable TV once a week. Amazing. And, and I guess it started in, I don't know, 1980, 79, 80. It went on for four years. At that point, cable TV was only available from 14th Street, no, 23rd Street uptown. So if you lived below 23rd Street, you couldn't see it anyway. It was only for the well-to-do. And and what did you do on TV party? We smoked a lot of weed and went crazy and and had, you know, just carried on. It was kind of like going to a club once a week, but everybody just gathered in this TV studio. Well, we'd start out in the, in the bar across the street. Yeah. And then work our way across into the studio. So that was always nice. Do you want to paint a picture of, of what this town was like at the period you were shooting TV Party? Well, as I was in the car coming here, I looked up uh, the glamour of decay, and I found a lot of different things with no linking theme. But there is, I, I didn't have enough time to look on my phone for literary references to the glamour of decay, but I'm sure they're out there. And there was some, there was something very glamorous about being in the midst of this uh, just rot that we were all in in New York City at the time. It was absolutely, it's become, New York City has become the complete opposite animal of what it was in the... Yeah, everywhere I used to go on on tour, people would ask me with, you know, trembling tremblingly ask me, how can you live in New York City? <laughs> yeah. I, I was hearing that Detroit is going to, they're, they're actually talking about 
selling off the uh, public art collection because they're in such bad shape. So if, if you want to get a glimpse of what urban decay is like now, I yes. you know, Detroit, to Detroit. Detroit is in kind of poor condition. There's a lot of great music there. Yeah, Detroit is awesome. But New York was in the throes of, you know, everything back in the late 70s. Mm. And it was famously declared bankrupt, right? Yeah, and, well, and famously, the Ford was it said, you know, there was a headline that said, Ford to City dropped dead. When he re- <laughs> we had the hell, we had the headline. You guys really could, did your homework. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I guess he was. <laughs> He was, you know, refusing some benefit that the government was supposed to supply some, you know, aid or something was. Yes. It really was like another country. It was a different place than any place in in the States. And now it's sort of become uh, very acceptable. And, uh, you know, people come here to raise families, which is unheard of, really, was unheard of. And Chris, you're from Brooklyn, right? Yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah. And, and Debbie, you're from New Jersey originally? North right? Jersey, yeah. So what were those sort of original forays into kind of voyaging to, into New York like for you as a, as a oh, young person? It was person? very exciting. I always wanted to uh, be a part of it. And um, it was uh, an escape route for me. And uh, I always knew that I was not cut out for suburbia. And I really had no interest in... Um, that kind of life. Uh, although I had great friends there and, uh, you know, lots of good times, lots of laughs, but, uh, I always intended to move to New York. When, when we first started coming in in the sixties, it was even before the decline and Lower East Side was still neighborhood, neighborhoody and had immigrant, you know, descendants. And it was, it wasn't the wild west yet. As it became in later in the you know in the seventies. So when did you first move here, Debbie? From- I first moved here in the mid sixties. Okay, and what yeah. were the first kind of jobs that you did when you arrived <laughs> in New York to make it? I, I just did anything really. I uh, worked in uh, retail, or actually, I was in. I worked in a wholesale market for uh, sort of. Um, whew, I, I forget the name of the companies. Ah. Hold Howard and uh, Colonial Candle. I sold candles to department stores, which, you know, was, I was terrible at it, but they kept me on. <laughs> when did you work for the BBC at some point? I worked for there? the BBC after that uh, as a secretary. And then I worked in the first head shop in New York City. And uh, that was, that was a lot of fun to meet all the, uh, downtown people and uh, look at, you know, have all of the great psychedelic posters and pipes and all that stuff. So I, I fit right in mm-hmm. over there. First head shop was on Ninth Street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like off second, maybe. Uh, yeah. Was right around, well, was right around the corner from where Veselka is now. Yeah, right. I think Veselka might have actually been there. Yeah, I think it's been there for yeah. a long time. I, I remember going into the first head. We have, we overlapped before we met later on. And we both were at Woodstock at the festival. Yes. We're old people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the precursor to you meeting, do you want to just, what's the musical backdrop at this point? 
At that, then? Yeah, at that time, yeah. Like what, what was music that you were, like, inhaling and, and digesting as a, as a young person? Oh, everything. Mm. Yeah. Listening yeah. to everything. I think, it, it, you know, radio was very uh, homogenous. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, you know, they played, they played everything, really. Yeah, the red, the were everything wasn't as um, genre specific as it is now. So on the same radio station, you'd hear James Brown, and then you'd hear the Rolling Stones, and you know something that now it's gone. All that the days of yeah, everything being played together certainly, <laughs> but that's that started going out a long time ago. And you know we like the Velvet Underground. We were all aware of those guys. They showed up in the midst of the flower power era with this, you know, dark record about heroin and death. That <laughs> got everybody's attention, certainly. And so tell us, how did you guys first meet? I had a, I, you know, everybody, it was kind of incestuous. Everybody was somehow related to everybody else on the scene. Yeah. And I just went to their first show with the stiletto. She was doing this girl trio thing. And I actually, I wound up going to the first event of theirs and was very taken with Debbie. I thought she was terrific. And that was it. And then I, I became the first non, uh, I became regular member of the band <laughs> after that. Of a were, band called the Stilettos. The Stilettos, yeah. Yeah. Sort of girl, campy, cabaret, R&B thing. And when you referred to the scene, you said, oh, everyone knew each other on the scene. What was the scene? Just, you know, the art scene and the spillover from Max's Kansas City. CBS hadn't really started up. It was it was going when we first met, but it hadn't really started the ongoing band situation that came later. But so, it, you know, the art scene was heavily mixed in with the music scene. The music scene was still coming out of the West Village with the remnants of the 60s bands, um, you know, like the the Night Owl and the Love and Spoonful and all that stuff and the folk music scene. Uh, Yeah, everybody was kind of, it was a lot of maybe more of a small town thing. And there seemed to be sort of a, a, a video and film thing happening at the same time in downtown. There's almost like a mini Hollywood effect going on but in, within your your community with people like Amos Poe and Jim Jarmusch. And, and I mean, do you want to talk about that whole scene and how music and film was connected? Well, I, to me, the central milieu was always Max's, where which was the... Everything sort of radiated out from there because that's where all the art people in the arts met and collected. And that was the Max's uh, from yeah before the seventies. That yeah. later evolved into uh, a a pretty much a, a, club, a rock yeah. place. But, but when Mickey Ruskin originally owned it, I mean, he's the guy who invented the velvet rope situation. You know, whereby really? you know. Yeah, and he was mm-hmm. the he was the first one to have people waiting outside and go. You you can come in, you can't come in. You know, <laughs> yeah. So that was, wow. yeah. Um, I think it's worth having a conversation about CBGBs and and what it meant to you and what it was like. Well, I spent a lot of time there. I have a thing there tomorrow. I've got a, got some interview with German TV at the and I you know I haven't even set foot in the Barbados store like ever so I'll, I'll go in there tomorrow just to define what what are you talking about when well, you say well CBGB's is now the um a clothing store a high-end men's clothing store 
which is John Varvatos, which is a really nice guy, actually. I just haven't gotten in there. It's kind of mind-boggling to walk on the block. I, you know, I, I, used to, I used to spend so much damn time there, and now when I walk there, it's kind of disorienting because it's it's, it's just so different. It's even hard to see where you are physically. So it's fair to say that CBGB's was really a hub for, you know, the, your scene at that particular time and your peers. And who were some of the other artists and, and sort of creatives that would just be hanging out there every night? Lance, Lance Loud, you know, anybody know who Lance Loud, there was a, there was a, Lance Loud was the victim of the very first reality TV show, I dare say, mm -hmm. which was called An American Family, whereby uh, the cameras followed this family around for years at a time. And in the midst of this show, the son came came out as gay and this was a real big deal. I don't. I don't know. I should have a time. I don't have a time frame. I haven't really thought about this. But um, and that was Lance, and he had a. He wound up in CBGBs with a band called the Mumps, right? Yeah, I think so. And uh, and it eventually uh, tore up the family, broke up the marriage. Um, <laughs> perfect ending, cataclysmic ending. I think they. I think they did an HBO docu about the show. But I'm not sure. Mm. It's kind of obscure stuff. Mm. And everyone refers to CBGBs as famously being like stinky, nasty, smelly, It was pretty dark nasty and, and stinky, and there were dogs who used to poop around and stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, it must have been amazing to feel that momentum. Were you aware of how significant the momentum that was going on in and around the orbit of that club was at the time, or was it just a club that you used to hang out in? I think everybody was pretty much in the moment. I don't. Yeah. Really, I don't think I, I. Certainly, I wasn't. I don't think I was thinking. Yes, I think it was a love-hate relationship, and you know, as they say, the best bar or club is the one closest to home. So, you know, for many of us, that was the truth. That was the mm -hmm. the reality. That you know, we lived within, you know, uh, I don't know, five or six block radius of of the club. So it it. It started out really as a local phenomenon, and, and, and it, it just grew because we we built it, you know, uh, through the press. You know, there was, uh, I don't know, it was very kind of intimate and personal, and and the newspapers started covering it. And then, um, you know, fledgling managers would, you know, come in and they would, uh, you know, sort of try to promote people and um, it just sort of built up. It was a, a sort of a natural build, which which worked to our benefit, worked to all of our benefits because we were allowed to uh, develop our our sounds, our act, our artistry, our thinking in veritable, you know, privacy, you know, and, you know, we would face the criticism of our, our you know, contemporaries, which was often, you know, very uh, extreme, um, but, you know, important. So, you know, that, that was kind I of a, a real plus. What I've often said is, you know, the, the scene there and in Seattle and in Liverpool and a few other places really got to ferment for a while before mm. it was jumped on by the media. Nowadays, as soon as something rears its head even that much, it's, you know, it's out there for everybody to see. So I don't know if that situation can ever really happen again. Just yeah, this was before cell phones even. Oh. Yeah, let alone all the rest of this stuff. Yeah. 
but and, and certainly the love hate thing is a. I mean, everybody then had a real love hate relationship with the city in general. I remember everybody was always going, "Oh, I can't wait to get out of here. It's so crummy. It's so dirty." And that was that was a, a constant theme. And now I wish it was that crummy and dirty again. You know, <laughs> certainly. Was everyone broke back then? Yeah, and yeah, and it was also very. That's the other. Yeah, I mean, the main thing was it was so easy to live here. For, cheap, for yeah. no money. It didn't cost anything to live here. When I was in the 60s, there were still apartments. I had new people who had apartments that cost $20 a month for a tub and kitchen, you know, on the Lower East Side, you know, single room. You could get, you get 20 bucks a month. It's, it's uh, you know, it's like, might as well be 1888, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, famously, when you started Blondie, you had this this top to bottom house almost, right? Where you had, had a creative yeah. space that you could just rehearse in. We had three floors over a liquor store that we moved in. This crazy friend of ours was the proprietor of, I don't know, he got he got it from another long incestuous story. So he wound up with this three-story loft, which he invited us to move into, which was really nice. And cheap? Yeah, cheap, yeah it was like, yeah. was like 300 bucks a month or something. No, it was a hundred and a quarter. That, well, that was, I don't know if that was our share. Or yeah, that was our thing. share. Yeah. And where was that? Uh, 266 Bowery. It's... There's, there's no landmarking on it. <laughs> and what kind of area was that it back was, then? Well, the guy from the Marbles lives there Yeah, now. well, somebody, we were in there like a few years ago. They, they, yeah, they right. sectioned it all off. and Ruined it's, it. It's still kind of wrecked. The, for the top floor, no, the top floor, the top is, floor is still Yeah, wrecked. it was still destroyed. Do you remember? Yeah, right. so we wound up in there doing some TV thing. It's Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like some Chinese absentee landlord who doesn't give a fuck and it's not, oh, you know. I thought that woman owned it. No, I, nah, somebody else owns it, some mm. guy. But it's now it's right across the street from the Museum of something or other. What is that <laughs> down there on the Bowery? New Museum. New Museum, yeah. Museum, okay, yeah. that. So that, you know, it's, it's not what, I mean, it used to be across the street, there were just derelict, empty storefronts that all the homeless guys would live in. Only in those days, you didn't call them homeless, they were just bums. So. Yeah. They were bums. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you were cold, probably no, not much central heating, and you were in this kind of empty, empty space. But what did this space give birth to, creative, well, creatively we, speaking? We rehearsed there and did a lot of stuff for the first album. Build up to the first album went on there, and and then we would just go across the street to CBGBs. It was a, you know it was like one block below Houston Street, and yeah. we would just drag this stuff to CBGB's. At one point, we played at CBGB's every weekend for seven months in a row. Wow. So I remember that, noting that at the time. So as Blondie, was your was your first gig officially at CBGB's? No, the first gig mm. was at this, the first gig with Gary was at, oh, shit, some bar. The Mushroom? No, I can't remember yeah. what the hell it was called. Now, I have it. It's in the book. It's in Making Tracks. Ah. There's actually a photo from it. It was another bar. Because there were a bunch of other places that people played at alternately. And when you finally did perform at your sort of home club, CBGBs, you know, and you've got people like the Ramones or Talking Heads in the audience or whatever, you know, what did they say after you performed? And, and was that a bit nerve-wracking for you performing in front of your friends? Yeah. No, the the band people weren't that critical. Yeah, it was um, just nerve wracking. It was performing. the other assholes that hung around. You know, they always had something to say, but that you know, like the band guys were, you know, all paranoid about what they were doing. So I mean, everybody was sort of, oh, 
were, you know, sort of staggering around and trying to figure it out. And, you know, everybody said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's kind of amazing when you think about just, you know, going on this in this dark, crappy bar for 20 people and being uptight and worrying about how, you, how you're going to come off. You know? Yeah. So but, somehow it went from being basically as hip and cool as you could possibly be to now where we can say that you've sold 40 million records. I think the official statistic is something. this day. That's this a day. drop in the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody remember what, <laughs> we remember what records were. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what to call it anymore. Yeah. It's not, you yeah. know, we call it a collection. At this collection, point. Yeah. yeah. But what was the tipping point? What was that moment where you went from playing for your for your mates, basically, in, in, a, in a bar to suddenly being asked to go abroad or being on tour or having a hit record? It was, it took a couple of years to build up. We went to L.A. Um, that was a big deal, going to L.A. for the first time. Yeah. The first gigs we did out of town were like Boston and Philadelphia. Uh, going on tour with Iggy was a big deal. That was that was pretty awesome. You know, we, the Idiot Tour included Bowie backing up Iggy on keyboards and singing backups, and that was an amazing moment. So we were suddenly out in America in 1977 with that, and that was terrific. And then you, you had a hit in Australia, right? The hit in Australia probably predated the Iggy thing, okay. maybe. I don't know. when like, It could have even been... I don't know the dates of this shit. Maybe 76 was the hit, and then the other stuff, then it's even really started kicking off in 77. I don't know. Yeah. Well... I, I'm not good at Somebody that. has to look it up and put it as a crawl, you know. I don't know how, I mean, it's important that, you know, it was this, this sort of gradual buildup. And, and I think that that's what we're trying to talk about is that, you know, there was this, as Chris says, fermentation for us, you know, and, and not instant exposure and, and, you know, this, this kind of worldwide manufactured exposure. Mm. Um, so, you know, we sort of really understand how important that was for us. You you kind of had the privilege in a way of controlling your image as well. I mean, you, you seem to be aware of the aesthetic of what you were doing through your photography as well yeah. and presenting that to the world in a way that you wanted it to be communicated. To, to a certain extent. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was always that is the do it yourself theme that we've always applied to ourselves every yeah. it was we never had stylists and we never had anything like that certainly it was all but none of the people well basically the, it was because it was like pre easy technology i mean technology now has become easy and everyone can experiment and and that's that's the way that the process of learning is about it's about experimentation and so we did that in a quiet way and and now people do that uh, and, you know, in front of, you know, millions of people. So whatever, you know, you feel comfortable with or, I mean, whatever's available, it's just a part of what we do uh, in the creative process or in the process of communication. So communication used to be very localized in, in the major cities of the world. And now it's not. It's it's everywhere, which, you know, what I don't know if it's good or bad. Does anybody? And and when you're putting those images out into the world, Debbie, when was the first time that you realized that you were sort of gaining momentum as this almost iconic figure in rock and roll and that the image was a huge part of what you were doing as well? 
I always knew about image being important and, um, you know, was very attached to that, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, looking at other artists and, and film stars or, you know, I, I always thought, oh, well, gee, that's, that's great looking or, you know, and especially in rock and roll, it's very, you know, it was very visual. If you didn't have the visual content for me, it, you know, didn't, didn't really add up. So, um, I think that the first time that I ever really realized, you know, that this had become something was not until in the 80s when I tried to reestablish my uh, my recording career. And uh, and then it sort of, it, you know, like the late 80s, early 90s, it really just sort of was staggering to me that this, you know, had become bigger I mean, it was just ridiculous, mm. you know, that this image thing had had really worked. Mm. Well, I mean, a lot of people famously say that, you know, without Debbie Harry, you, you wouldn't necessarily have a Madonna or a Gaga or people who have been very image conscious in, in, in the future. But for me, it's like the music with you guys always came first. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it seemed like the image was, you know, an amazing, powerful tool in getting the music to people. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, I don't think one would have worked without the other, uh, for sure. Um, I, the music was the basis for it. So, um, you know, I think that we were dedicated to that. I mean, it, it was a struggle to, you know, bring the music to, to the public. And um, so, I mean, that was actually the driving force. And then famously, you know, once you were with, uh, was it Chrysalis, your record label? Oh. Yeah, well, Christmas was, we wound up on. We were first with this smaller label in the States called Private Stock, mm. which was... Um, a hobby. Yeah, kind of a, a what do you call <laughs> a it? Hobby a, label. a vanity project yeah. from this guy who we had been, who had been partners with uh, Seymour. Yeah. He had been partners with Seymour Stein, and Seymour went on to be much more of a visionary than Larry. They had been part of, I don't know, Bell or Buddha Records, and they they split up and formed their two labels, and then then we got bought off private stock by by Chrysalis. We should mention actually the other people in the group at this point. How many are you? Well, we have well, we already had a bunch of turnovers initially. I mean, there's been a lot of people in Blondie over the years, and we you know we started out with. Fred and Jesus. I mean, there was a lot of people even before the success, you know. And then Gary is on the first album. And he was a very charismatic kid by his own right. And then we, then Frankie came in for the halfway through the second album. Just a lot of people. The, the, main, the main lineup from the, those days is uh, Gary and I, Nigel, Nigel, who had played with Ray Manzarek and and Manzarek in his in Night City, Night, who you know the now late Ray, who we, was a really lovely fellow. Nigel had been in his band. Nigel played bass on the Runaways record, even though it's not supposed to be him. Jimmy, who who is there early on, Clem, who was there very early on with his drumming. And talking of drumming, we should talk about the Heart of Glass moment because that's like the, is that the first time you were playing to a click track, right? 
Well, I don't know. Maybe some some of those other songs on the record. That was the first deconstructed song, I think, as such, probably. I don't even know if there's another. I think all the other songs may have had like a full kit and, and you know, at least one or a bass or rhythm guitar and or rhythm guitar with it. What was the process of making that that song? It was just the way people make records now in pieces where you have, you know, you do a bass drum on one track and you do a toms on another track and it's just it's all pieced together. And so it was, you know, it was challenging to say the least. So where are we at in the timeline of Blondie at the moment? I think it's, do you mind me raising the fact that you're also a couple at, at this stage as well? Yeah, we were hanging out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, what, what this is this is from Auto American, which had this and the tide is high on it. And famously, when we gave the record to Chrysalis, they said we don't hear any singles on this record. Yeah. <laughs> they heard that they said that about Parallel Lines too. But that's what record companies do, and record companies were were and are inherently evil. <laughs> so let's. Anybody just, here know. from a label? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Bless you. I mean, I shouldn't make a broad statement like that. I'm sure there's some indie labels and, you well, know, I mean... I think if anyone is qualified to talk about the highs and lows of the music industry, it's definitely you guys, because we should talk about... I mean, it's relevant. Obviously, we've got a room full of musically-minded producers, DJs, singers, artists. Um, you know, you you definitely had a rough ride with the management and, and money and accounting experience. Is that right? Well, well, the main thing was that the two years we made the most money, our accountant decided not to pay our taxes. So, and, and you know, because in those days it was, the, those were the days of tax shelters and loopholes and trying not to pay taxes, you know, even on a non-Apple Amazon level, so... Well, also, we were extremely bad business people. And we really didn't didn't pay attention to it or were very interested in it. And we sort of waited or trusted management to take care of things, which I think now people are much more knowledgeable. And, um, but although, I mean, record companies now, you know, want a percentage of, of everything that you do. So, I mean, that that's rough, too. They, they take a percentage across the board of, you know, tours, merchandise, records or CDs, whatever, you know, whatever income's coming in, they are entitled to some of it, which is kind of gross. Yeah, I mean, well, it is definitely a relevant subject to talk about because, you know, we mentioned 40 million records at this stage in your career. I think you definitely were hitting 20 million records worldwide and yet parting ways with a manager. And, you know, how is it that you can have 20 million records on the board and, and not be paid right? It's amazing. Mm. I mean, for us, we, we sit here and we're like, yeah, Blondie, Debbie, Harry, Chris Stein, superstars. But there's definitely been low points. We've had platinum discs on the wall, yeah, I imagine, sure. and... and even funnier was when Heart of Glass was at number one, um, we were on suspension, which means that we hadn't filled the obligations of our contract. So we had a number one record, and we were also on suspension. I mean, the, the whole thing of it was mad. It was really mad. Well, it'll, it'll, the, the goes back to the surf mentality. There used to be this... The Brill Building. Does anybody know what that was? There was the. It was a building in New York that where all the old songwriters would 
collect and you know write and do their work out of, and it, and it all it kind of represented the corporate aspect of the music business at the time with publishing, meaning paper publishing, physical objects and such. And it was kind of a surf mentality where, where you, you were working for the record company rather than with them, certainly. And I mean, it might be an oversimplified question, but if you could impart one bit of knowledge about, you know, what you've learned from the bad bits. Oh, well, just don't trust anybody. <laughs> you know, what the fuck? I mean, you could, that, you know, that was the big, the big uh, thing was having somebody come along and go, you, you can trust me, son, and do that thing. And then that, then they, and you're fucked from there on, you know? So. Well, there are, I mean, there is more information now. So that's, yeah. that's very good. Yeah, you know, I mean, at, at that point, you couldn't. The guy we had for a lawyer went on to write textbooks that are used in entertainment law classes. And I don't even think there were entertainment law classes in the 70s. You know, it just didn't exist. So, so you can imagine how people like before us really, you know, never saw. I mean, you hear stories like that all the time, right? Artists from the 60s and the 50s. Mm -hmm. I never saw a nickel. And um, talk to me about the cover of Parallel Lines. Oh, well, it's what it is. It's nice. It's okay. Black and white. Hey, I mean, if the if the if the if the music hadn't happened, I don't think that it would have stood out particularly as great art or, you know, hugely interesting. It it just you know became very popular. So the artwork, you know, meant something. Is it? I can't think of another popular rock and roll group that's a band of guys with a female front vocalist. Has that ever happened before or since? Uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips. <laughs> I guess rock and roll, though. Yeah. Well, Did you ever see when the Pips performed without Gladys? Yeah, they're called And the Pips. Uh, it's it's yeah. the great. It's, it's great. It's they so just, great. They just do the backups. They just do the backups. Midnight it's train, fabulous. You know, it's great. Amazing. Yeah. I heard it. Well, at this point in the career, you... you, you <laughs> I heard it. Yeah. It's really funny. So at this point in your career, obviously there's loads of people around you that you couldn't trust, but you definitely have always trusted each other. Um, we don't want to pry too much, but it's, you know, beautiful to have such a creative soulmate <coughs> partnership that's lasted until this day. Maybe you could talk to us about the, about working with the person closest to you. Oh, Debbie, well, we just have a lot of, you know, unsaid communication, a lot of nonverbal stuff goes on. We are always, I don't really have to ask her much because she always will have the same conclusions. Yeah. And I, I mean, know. sometimes he'll, he'll, most recently, uh, there were a couple lines in a song that, uh, you know, he came up with. And then, you know, there were two more lines that had to be written and I had already written them. So, I mean, it just sort of happens. That, yeah. You know, it's one of the easy for us. I mean, we certainly have had our disagreements and battles, you yeah. know, but um, not, not so much recently. No, we get, we get along pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And do you mind, Chris, talking about the period in your life where you, you fell ill? You know, I, I just had this weird illness, which is uh, 
genetic, I'm told. You have to be Mediterranean, Eastern European origin. And um, I was doing so many fucking drugs. I just uh, wore myself out and really lowered my immune system. And this thing came up and it took a couple of years to get rid of. It was annoying but interesting. Mm. And and am I right in thinking, Debbie, that you put things on hold for yourself as well in order to... Well, I, I don't know. I, I I really had no super ambition to be a solo artist. I always liked the idea of working in a, um, you know, in a in a group in a band, and uh, I loved collaborating with Chris. So, um, I mean, simultaneously, let's uh, let's figure out the rest of stuff. We. We got dropped from our label. Yeah, we were at a low Chris, point. Chris got what, what you know, year is this? sick. 82. Yeah, 82. Yeah. Chris got sick. Um, our financial manager did not pay our taxes. Uh, you know, all of this, uh, the bottom fell out. And so, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to, to continue. I just, you know, I was swamped in, you know, this mire of complicated disgusting issues so uh, you know uh, we also felt that you know I mean nowadays my sort of one of my favorite things to say to people is don't forget to take a vacation because we worked nonstop for seven years under you know extreme you know pressure and and Chris started his own label and he was producing artists and you know we were doing a lot of stuff you know and and without stopping and stopping is very important so it shows that you know we were forced to stop they said stop and that's basically what happened and and you're still sitting on the sofa together well yeah we're here you know things <laughs> is what it don't, is, you know? don't press your luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to sort of cliche too much the 70s and 80s drug thing, but it is a relevant sort of sidebar to sort of the the kind of timeline of some of the ups and lows, ups and downs of the group as well. Yeah. Um, you know, how much did that have an effect on not just you guys and your personal relationship together, but the whole ensemble? I think everybody was taking drugs. It was socially, you know, that was it. That was what was going on. And I, I don't know what's going on today, really. Um, I think people experiment and try things. I don't know. I don't see people being, you know, sort of constantly involved with drugs. Perhaps more of a party thing. I've always thought that the, the my parents' generation had absolutely, really zero information about drugs. That so we, growing up, just never heard anything about it. And when, except that, okay, this is might be fun or it seems like it should be amusing or whatever, you know. So that was it. We just, there was, the ravages of, of it weren't as apparent as they are now, certainly. So fast forwarding a little bit, once um, you've got through and you're back on track after being sick. Um, you reformed Blondie, but but with a slightly different cast. I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on the negative stuff, but for people that are just starting out in music, it's definitely worth, you know, um, 
not ignoring the possible things that can happen when you fall out with people or things don't work out with other band members and stuff. Maybe you could talk to us to, about that experience in a positive way, what you can draw from it. Oh, I don't know. We just, well, we had been working with Lee Fox for years. I mean, he's been working with us for 20 odd years at this point. Um, really? Yeah. He, we've been, yeah, we've been working with him since God knows when, you know? Yeah. So, so I don't know. I don't know. You know, we, I, I, we, I tried to work with Gary again that, uh, you know, I mean, Gary and I always were friendly, except when we in a working situation when we were would bump heads. It didn't seem to work out. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe it's his fault. You know, you can, it's hard to say. You know, I didn't we didn't really think about using Nigel and Frankie. <laughs> Again, uh, and you know, it was why well, it's we, very difficult to keep an ensemble together. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, especially if you're, you know, sharing a partnership, and we were all, you know, partners in a corporation as well. And, and, uh, you know, and the band situation is like fairly democratic. I mean, you know, you yeah. have to have a vote. You know, vote, you know the get outvoted and stuff like that, so. Yeah. It's one of those things. I mean, how, how, I mean, when you work on a film, you're working with people for, you know, six weeks, two months, three months at, you know, on the outside usually. And, um, you know, you, even in that short situation, even in the run of a play, you know, there's, you know, things, egos get in the way and you're, you know, it doesn't work. It, and, you know, after how many years, forget it. I mean, it's just sometimes it just wears itself out. I mean, friendships come and friendships go, and and you mature in different ways and in different timing, and um, you know, that's just life, right? I mean, it's clear that you, you two are the creative nucleus of, of Blondie, but what is the the creative process? I mean, do you like being in the studio? Do you spend a lot of time there, or maybe you could just give us an insight into how you make music together? Well, it's been changing. All the time with technology, you know. I, I, technology. I say we're. We, I'm glad that we were at the height of analog recording and we got to experience that. But I really enjoy working with the modern stuff, you know, with the computers and and just working the way it is. It's much more intuitive once you get it going. Um, and that, that, you know, there's a lot of people involved with it. I think there are more people with this last thing that we're just wrapping up now than ever before. We have more outside influences and individuals coming into it, into the whole project. I will say that, you before. know, Chris was uh, into computers at a very early time with the Amiga. I remember the onset of email. And I remember, you know, and if I had any brains, I would have bought all those great domain names. But <coughs> what, can I, what can you say? You're a failure. Yeah. <laughs> And what's the process now? You, you're working on a uh, on a brand new record. Yeah, what's, we've just the finished a bunch of stuff. Um, what do you do in the studio, Chris? Me, I sit there now and I do a lot of programming, and I make a version of the song somewhat, and then I send it to my producer, and he replaced some parts, and then we all got together later on in the process and replaced more parts. But at this point, all every song has some of my little synthesizers and things on yeah, it that it I, we started out with. Yeah, came up with some nice with. sounds. And Debbie, have you enjoyed this sort of new 
out of touring as much as you did the first time around? Do you still get a kick out of touring and performing? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I do. I'm, uh, I, you know, that's what I've sort of wanted to do and trained myself to do. It's, um, and I still, you know, I still learn things from it. So it's not like it's, I walk out like a zombie or a robot, you know. I really, it's something that's an experience that I learn things from all the time. And, um, I mean, technically, it's become a lot easier for me with uh, in-ear monitors and, uh, mm. oh, I don't know, sound equipment. Everything has improved. The technology has really improved. It's great. Yeah, no, the whole thing is much easier. Yeah. Well, it's been a great privilege for me to sit alongside such legends and for us all to have such an education today. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Thank Chris, Dine, and Thank you, Harry. Thank you. This is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in New York. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.